now for our second message. It will be brought to us by Mr. Matthew Steele. And I hope I didn't jump the gun to send. I'll repeat it just in case. Our message will be brought to us by Mr. Matthew Steele, and it's entitled Isaiah's Vision. Good afternoon, everyone. Just to continue with the theme, Isaiah did not have a vision about Matthew Steele. So. Just to make that clear, too. British invasion, huh? I think Mr. Gregory's nervous about that. Maybe, uh, maybe we're here subverting and we're, we're going to take the territory back. I, I remember that in, um, oh, I don't know if you guys remember the Falklands War, but all the U.S. media on the, on the uh, newspapers all said, the empire strikes back. So I thought it was pretty interesting. But speaking of media, there's been a lot going on in the media recently, hasn't there? A lot of uh, revelations, revelations after revelations, and, and not the kind that we would find in the back of the Bible either. Uh, I think we'd all be doing a lot better if the media was publishing what's going on in Revelation. But what we've been having is revelations about powerful individuals, powerful men, and what they have been doing with their power and the abuse of power. And of course, you know, there's, there's all many, almost too many individuals to name at this point. It seems like each day there's a new, a new powerful individual, either you know, somebody in the past or currently that is being accused of abusing women in one way or the other, or, or even other men as well. It's incredible, isn't it? But at the same time, it's not surprising. It's not surprising. You know, if these revelations and criminal sexual misconduct charges keep going, what is it going to do to our society? What is it going to continue to do to the image of man? Well, you know, that's just man. They're all like that plenty of individuals that might have that opinion for one reason or another, maybe things that have happened to them in their own lives. And, well, this is just vindication, right? Validation that clearly men are the uh, inferior sex, right? No self-control, no discipline, no ability to protect those that are weaker than themselves. Taking advantage, right, of the weaker pressing the weaker. If man is supposed to be the best, the leaders, the influences, the senators and congressmen, presidents, senior leaders, leaders in news and media, if these men who are supposed to be the best can be so abusive of their power, so brazen in their actions, then how long will it be before it further tarnishes the image of man and in our culture and in our, in our society. Can men be trusted? I was joking with Renee last night. We were talking about this topic a little bit. And I said, huh, maybe this is how that scripture comes to pass when it says, 
and women rule over them. Right? Because all the men have invalidated themselves. They've all been fired or put in prison. And so who else is going to lead? There might not be anyone, any man left with the qualifications. So women have to rule. Is that what's meant by that passage in Isaiah? Is that what he had a vision of? In fact, what does that passage have to say for us, for us at this time? In many ways, what he talked about, what Isaiah talked about, was history, or is history now. But are there things that are relevant for us today in that, in that passage? So if you would turn to Isaiah chapter 3. And, and this chapter starts, it kind of comes into a, a, a long, the middle of a long judgment of Judah and Jerusalem. And it's with many of the prophecies. It's interesting. They're probably the first four or five chapters of Isaiah. There's this rhythmic cycle of condemnation on the, on the nation. And then a future looking for restoration and repentance and, and mercy and grace. And then it sweeps back into another passage of condemnation and correction and instruction. And then swings back over into God's mercy and grace. And there's all, almost this melodic feel to, the, to the, the passages as we read them. And in Isaiah, we find this passage, firstly, of judgment, of condemnation. Starting in verse 1, Isaiah declares, For behold, the Lord of hosts takes away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stock and the store, the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water, the mighty man and the man of war, the judge and the prophet, and the diviner, and the elder, the captain of fifty, and the honorable man, the counselor, and the skillful artisan, and the expert enchanter. I will give children to be their princes, and babes shall rule over them. The people will be oppressed, and everyone, everyone by another, and everyone by his neighbor. And the child will be insolent toward the elder, and the base toward the honorable. When a man takes hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, you have clothing, you be our ruler, and let these ruins be unto your power. And in that day he will protest, saying, I cannot cure your ills, for in my house is neither food nor clothing. Do not make me a ruler of the people. For Jerusalem stumbled, and Judah is fallen, because, of the t because their tongue and their doing are against the Lord, to provoke the eyes of his glory. The look on their countenance witnesses against them, and they declare their sin as Sodom, and they do not hide it. Woe to their soul, for they have brought evil upon themselves. Say to the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hands shall be given him. For my people, children, as for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O oh, my people, those who lead you cause you to err and destroy the way of your path. Well, that's a fine, uplifting passage for a Sabbath. And yet it's important for us to study these things. 
it's important for us to, to recognize what Isaiah recognized, what God was trying to communicate to Jerusalem, to Judah, to the people of Israel, and see if there's any application for us today. How is it relevant for us? I don't know about you, but as I was reading those passages, thoughts are, are coming to mind about events and places and things that we've seen come to pass in our society. Let's go back to the beginning. In verse 1 it says, For behold, the Lord of hosts takes away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stock and the store, the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water. Now someone might say, well, hey, we've got grocery stores full of food. We can just go there right now and see full shelves. They're hardly ever empty. Stocked again every night. We have food. We have bread and water. Well, we can just go back there to the fountain and press the button, and out comes the water. Clean water for us to drink. So how can this be relevant to us? Well, there are, in fact, increased concerns about growing drought conditions in the United States. And we have technology that is maybe helping us in that regard. But there's a growing concern about drought in the country. Reduced rainfall in re regions that are important to agriculture. Reduced snowfall in the mountain regions that supply great swaths of arable land with the water necessary to grow. And of course, we have a growing academic of something else, don't we? Because we're all fast becoming the church of the gluten-free. We have a growing epidemic of food allergies. I was telling Brian the other day, the list of things that I cannot eat right now, I'm allergic to planet Earth. It's incredible. And people that do not have the genetic markers for some of these food allergies are now developing them anyway. So, are we sure that we have food? Because the intrinsic element that makes food food is that it nourishes us and doesn't kill us. You can eat anything, honey. But to survive, we need food. Healthy food. And of course, the ground now is becoming so depleted. The volume of artificially introduced fertilizers and insecticides and herbicides is just saturating the ground. And we're doing this in order to keep the yields up so that we can have supposedly enough food, or at least enough profits, perhaps, for agribusiness. But ostensibly, for food. I wonder, if we took all of those away and we went to all organic if we could even do that because of what we've done to the land, would there be enough for us all to eat? In many ways, it's smoke and mirrors, disguising what may be going on underneath, that we are having that whole supply of bread and water removed. But all that being said, there's another sort of famine that comes on the land, isn't there? Not a physical one, a spiritual one. That sort of famine, I think, is directly related to what we see in our society today. 
And I think that's why this passage starts out that way. Because it starts out by take, God saying, I'm going, to remove, I'm going to remove the things that you need to live. He's also removing the things that we need to live spiritually if we fall under this judgment. As we know, bread can also be a symbol of the word of God. It can be a symbol for God himself. In John chapter 6 and verse 32, Jesus says unto them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am, one of those I am's that Mark was talking about, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Again, the bread and the water right there for our nourishment. Firstly, it is Christ Jesus. And remember in the wilderness, when the children of Israel were given that manna, that bread from heaven. Jesus references it. You know, and somehow they've got it in their mind that Moses gave them the bread from heaven. He didn't even give them that, did he? God gave them the manna, the bread from heaven. God completely supported them. And that's what that word means, that word staff. It's a supporting structure. Supporting, upholding the society, the community. And that's the most basic thing we have, isn't it? Our food. Without that, we die. Without water, we die. Without God, we die. So there's a spiritual application to this famine that is going to come on the land. In Isaiah 3, verse 1, God says, I will take away the stock and the store. doing that for us today. God says he's going to take it away. He took it away from Judah and Jerusalem, and history shows us that. And we too, right? Because we called upon his name. We called on his name to help us become a people. We took the name, and we said that we do these things in this nation under God. Well, if we agree to call on his name, if we agree that covenant relationship, then how are we any different from the nation of Israel and Judah? How can we escape the same judgment? Back to verse 2, he says, The mighty man and the man of war, the judge and the prophet, and the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty, and the honorable man, the counselor, the skillful artisan, expert enchanter. These two he's going to take away. And some might say, well, yeah, we've, you know, we've, we have judges, we have men of war, you know, we have the most powerful military in the world. How, how has he taken that away? We still have elders, right? We still have preachers. And there's still plenty of churches to go to. And as for the captain of 50, well, we don't, we don't have captains of 50, so that's not relevant to us. 
But yet what these two verses are about is leadership. And we have leadership. We have leadership of different kinds. You don't have a man of war? Yes, you do. It's called the commander-in-chief. We have a man of war. Congressmen, congresswomen, senators, courts. They're the judges. They're the judges in this passage. And the captains of 50, well, you remember how Israel was divided up. They divided this layered structure to, for administration, for, for taking care of the business of the people. There's no way that Moses could handle all the things that were going to come upon this community of people and the judgments that had to be made. And so they, they made these different captains. Captains of 50, they're your local politicians. They deal with local issues. The mayors and the city councilors. Local leaders. What God is saying here is that he's going to take away leaders at every level. He's going to remove the leadership at every level. But not in a manner that we might expect. Not in a manner that just leaves a void. He's taking them away Placing them with somebody else. He's going to replace good leaders, good princes, with bad ones. In verse 4, God says, I will give children to be their princes, and babes shall rule over them. The people will be oppressed, and everyone by another, and everyone by his neighbor. The child will be insolent toward the elder, and the base. Now, I don't think God is going to put actual toddlers in the White House or Congress. Although, they would probably do a better job, right? They certainly couldn't make it any worse. But emotionally speaking, we have a bunch of babies, don't we? As our leaders. We have a bunch of babies, immature, squabbling, arguing over things that don't matter. Meanwhile, there are real problems. People in our society suffer at different levels, for different reasons. They're not the things that are really talked about. What's talked about is whether somebody should resign because they said something or did something, and, and people get their feelings hurt because of what somebody said in the Twitter account. We should remove Twitter accounts from all politicians. Insane. These are our children, children leaders. God said, I'm gonna I'm gonna replace real leaders with children. They don't have any real vision, don't have any real abilities to to address the problems. Meanwhile, we have constant violence. Mark talked about it in this first in the first message. We have violence everywhere. And what is happening? Neighbors are oppressing one another. It's neighbors that are shooting one another. It's people in communities that are just going on these rampages. It's not an enemy coming in from another land. We're shooting up ourselves. Instead, he would do this. He would bring this about. This is a judgment. Everyone is being oppressed by one another. 
and every one I can think of. You know, I was wondering about the recent revelations, as we talked about earlier, about men in power abusing the women around them. And I, I'm not asking for a show of hands. It's just a wondering out aloud. How endemic is that in our society? Does that happen all the time? Is that going on in our society? It's just not reported. I kind of think it probably is. It probably is. And, you know, it's not reported maybe for the same reasons that many of the women that have now come out regarding these politicians and, and, and media individuals, although they were just afraid they would be isolated, they would be, they would be made the victim. And they, those are all valid concerns well then, that's likely happening at every level in our society. In verse 6, it says, When a man takes a hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have clothing, you be our ruler, and let these ruins be unto your power. In that day he will protest, saying, I can't, I can't cure your ills. I mean, who would take that job now? Any volunteer? Sean, you want that job? cure this? Who could cure these ills? For my house is neither food nor clothing. Do not make me a ruler over the people. And, and have we gotten to that point? Have we gotten to that point where this is happening? You just look the part. <laughs> no qualifications. What was that recent uh, nomination to uh, I can't remember which circuit. Judge Trevor, you might remember has no experience in the courtroom at all. Going to make that guy a judge. Sounds like a good idea. I guess he has the robe. He went out to the store and bought the robe. And he looks the part. So regardless of what political you know, side of things you might be in, the choices that we have to vote for. Maybe they look the part. They have what, I remember on a, a, a TV skit one time, they have the presidential hair. You know, it's just perfectly, they look presidential. They may look the part, but on the outside, they lack maturity and wisdom for the office they hold. And how could they? They don't know right from wrong. They just know. Case in point, this morning in the news I was reading regarding a judge in Ohio. You guys may have heard of this guy. He's running for governor. He's a Supreme Court judge. Anybody heard of this? He gets on Facebook. And he's in an election campaign. And he gets on Facebook and boasts about his conquests. On Facebook. To the point that he's He's almost identifying the women involved. It, he's a judge. He is a judge, a Supreme Court judge for the state of Ohio. And he's running for governor. That's his moral. These are the quali qualifications that we want in our leaders. 
He thinks it's fine. He even got criticism from his own party and went back on there and defended himself even more. It's insane. The response from the media, though. What's the response from the media? Oh, it's condemnation, right? And all the other politicians. It's just, ah, oh, this is awful. How could he do such a thing? Insensitive, especially given the current climate and so on and so forth. And yet the media, these news outlets, are owned by larger media companies that produce television shows in which people do these things every night on television time and time again, and they make his 50 conquests look like nothing. The hypocrisy of it. Hypocritical. Lacking any judgment, any wisdom, any understanding of how to live. Glorifying of their media the same activities Are we so naive as a country that we think that all of this won't have an effect? That it won't have an effect on society and start to change the attitudes and further debase the attitudes? Within each new level, right, it's just, well, we just get used to that level. And it keeps getting lower. In Isaiah, back to chapter 3 and verse 8, he says, for Jerusalem stumbled, and Judah has fallen. You notice what happens there, right? It's the leaders. Jerusalem stumbled, and the knock-on effect is that the people fall. The leadership, the capital, where the authority is, stumbles, and then the nation has fallen. And why have they fallen? Because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of his glory. The things that they do are against the Lord. They're against God. It's interesting that it's, it's not just that they're sinning, right? Because we all sin. We have all sinned. And we all struggle with sin. That's not what's talking about here talking about actions that are just against God. A lifestyle of sin. Verse 9. The look on their countenance witnesses against them. Or as we would say, you can tell by the look on their face. Right? And they declare their sin as Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to their soul. For they have brought evil upon themselves. I don't care who knows. It doesn't, it doesn't face them. It doesn't matter to them. They share their exploits with the world. They're proud of it. Boastful. Almost goading God into doing something about it. And he will do something about it. But there's also something else at work in our society when these kinds of things happen. It's part of a process that, have you, have you ever heard of the term uh, defining deviancy down? Anybody ever heard of that? It was a term coined back in the 1990s uh, by Senator Patrick Moynihan. And it, it, it's, a, it's a broad description of 
a change in society where what was once deviant behavior is kind of now lowered. That with each successive change in society, with each successive revelation about behavior in society, it further suppresses the level of abnormality and what is not good to do. And I was thinking about that in regards to when I first moved here. I remember a news, uh, I think it was on the radio I was listening to, and it was not long after I'd moved here, and there was a, a vote, I want to say in Texas, where they were rescinding the sodomy laws. 20 or so years ago. And in that space of time, in that 20 years, now we have gay marriage. Wow. Redefining what normalcy is. Defining deviancy down. Well, it's only the really low bad stuff. Just readjusting the dial. This is what is meant by declaring sin as Sodom. What it is. And as to our judge who boasted on Facebook, something that he was doing. That used to be called deviant. And now it's just being called insensitive. That's really the biggest criticism of what he posted on Facebook. It's just insensitive. No, it's deviant. According to God's standards, it's deviant. In fact, the definition of whether that kind of behavior is good or bad has come down to one word. Was it consensual? If it was consensual, then it's fine. Really? God doesn't say that. Never mind that this sort of sin is not only destructive to the lives of the men and women who even give their consent, but also society as a whole. They look, the look on their countenance witnesses against them. And they declare their sin as Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to their soul. And that's, you know, that, that speaks of something more than just woe to their life, right? We're talking about an eternal risk here. When people know to do good and do not. Dropping down to verse 11, it says, Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him for the reward of his hands shall be given in him. As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O oh, my people, those that lead you cause you to err and destroy the way of your paths. They're just out there. They're leading us, right? And they are destroying the paths as they are walking out ahead of us. And we are just following along. And it's interesting. You know, in the past, we've, We've said that women ruling over the people was a sign that all the male leadership had gone. You know, that, that there just was, men had invalidated themselves from leadership. And that may well be true. And, and, and so the idea is that, well, somebody needs to lead, and so the women step up and do it. But there's another way of looking at this. Because the term women is also used in cases to refer to a harlot. 
an evil woman, a holotist woman. And that carries a whole different connotation, doesn't it? Especially in the light of what we are seeing in the media today. Because holotry is not confined to women. Men can be harlots, too. And this sexual promiscuity and the corruption in our leaders, it's an interesting thing that we should consider. That maybe it's harlots rule over them and not women. Because, after all, Israel and Judah had women judges, and they were good, and they weren't condemned. So, maybe there's another way of looking at that passage. Verse 13, he says, The Lord stands up to plead. He stands to judge the people. You've got this courtroom, right? And he's standing up, and he's pleading his case. And then he's also the judge. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders of his people and his princes, for you have eaten up the vineyard the plunder of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor, says the Lord God of hosts. I see this in the new so-called tax plan right here. Where it's interesting, isn't it, the, the tax reductions for you and I sunset after a period of time. But the tax reductions for the big corporate entities they continue to have that benefit. Moreover, the Lord says, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go. Again, we've got this imagery of harlots, right? This isn't just women. These are harlots. They're trying to draw in and capture in in a sexual way, making a jingling with their feet. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab and the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will uncover their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery, the jingling anklets, the scarves and the crescents, the pendants and the bracelets and the veils, the headdresses and the leg ornaments and the headbands and the perfume boxes and the charms and the rings. It goes on and on. It sounds like they're at the mall, right? And you think about these things. Think about the marketing that women in this country are oppressed with. Well, you've got to have these. You've got to have the, the right purse. You've got to have all these clothes and shoes. And, and, and oh, by the way, we're going to renew the fashions every you know, few months. And it's just this oppressive environment for women. God's going to take it away going to relieve that burden. Remember, this is all in the context of people oppressing themselves, our society oppressing ourselves. The nose jewels, the festal apparel, the mantles, the outer garments, and the purses, and the mirrors, and the fine linen, and the turbans, and the robes. And so it shall be. Instead of a sweet smell, there will be a stench. Instead of a sash, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a girding of sackcloth. And a branding instead of beauty. What is that? When you, when you see those words, 
What condition are those people in? Slavery. They're tied up with ropes. You don't get fine garments as a slave. And you do get branded. Slavery. And why? Your men have fallen by the sword. You lost the battle. And you're mighty in the war. Her gates shall lament and mourn, she being desolate, shall sit on the ground. That's all that's left. Sit on the ground. So overwhelming. It's just everything is taken away. Men, women, cut down. Their beauty taken away. Nothing left but to sit on the ground in shock and in mourning. How is this going to happen? It happens in war. All of these things happen in war. And that's the final judgment. And that was the final judgment on Judah and Jerusalem. That's what happened to them. Invading armies come, take away take slaves, and they pillage, and they spoil, and they destroy. It's happened before, folks. Isaiah says it will happen again. But what does it mean for us as Christians? Because I'm sure you've been sitting there thinking, well, wait a second, I'm doing the best that I can. I'm trying to follow God. I am trying to live in that newness of Christ what does all this mean to us? Are we going to have to endure all of these things? And if so, what's in it for us? Well, in the midst of the gloom, right really in the middle of the chapter, and I skipped over it, we find verse 10, Isaiah chapter 3 and verse 10. This one little verse jumps out out of all the darkness. It's, it's almost like, God needs to throw us a bone. Don't worry. I've got something in here for you. Verse 10, say to the righteous that it shall be well with them, that they shall eat the fruit of their doing. Amen. Amen. They will eat the fruit of their doing. Now, before we get carried away with ourselves, right, we have to dispense with the notion and the idea that we are better than anybody else, that we are somehow special. We've got our own reserved safety net here, that we are less wicked than the people of the world. We're the special ones. We're going to be protected. Don't be fooled. That's not what he says here, is it? He doesn't say, I'm going to stop all the stuff that I'm going to bring on the people from happening to you. He doesn't say that. That's not there. Let's look at this passage clearly. Without preconceived ideas that we're somehow better than everyone else, we're not. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 3, verse 21? But now the righteousness of God, apart from the Lord, is revealed. 
being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus to all and on all who believe. Ah, that's how we get the righteousness, because we believe. Not even by the keeping of the law, but by faith and belief in Christ Jesus. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Passed over us and those sins to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just on the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Beautiful. And we didn't do it. We didn't make this happen. We didn't earn it. We didn't make this for ourselves. We're not more righteous by our works. We're not more righteous than that judge that boasts on Facebook. We've all sinned, just like all the men and women that have abused others. Maybe we've sinned in different ways. Maybe the consequences are different. Sin is still the transgression of the law, and we've all done it. What makes us righteous then? Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus living within us our faith and belief that single promise. And then we walk in newness of life. Then we follow the law of God. Freely, by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You know, it's easy to condemn. It's easy to criticize because we have such big targets in the world. But every single one of us done the same thing as that judge in our mind. Every single one of us. We have committed those sins in our mind. So we should be careful, firstly, that we do not consider ourselves better than those that God will bring judgment upon. In fact, it really should humble us. It should motivate us. It should inspire us to warn those that are around us. What did Peter say on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 40? And with many other words, it said that he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. We should be doing that. We should be exclaiming that. And then secondly, we really should not think that we're going to be immune from what happens in the world from the changes that we see in society, from the things that happen around us. It is going to depress our thinking if we're not careful. It is possible that we too can find ourselves on the wrong side of God's judgment. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. For it is God who works in you, both to do, 
to will and to do for his good pleasure. We have to work at it, don't we? Each one of us should work at this like it's a job, like our life depended on it, as it really does, especially living in this world. Let's not deceive ourselves into thinking the comparison is a benchmark. What do I mean by that? Well, I'm not as bad as that guy or this other guy. That's not the benchmark. Deviancy has been so lowered down, that could never have been a benchmark anyway. The benchmark is Christ Jesus living in us. Let's set aside more prayer. Let's set aside more time to study. Well, I already do that. Do it more. Do it more. Let's set aside time for that real study, reading the words, bread of life, the manner that's come down to us every time we open the book, to nurture, strengthen that new creature that's inside of us. And in doing so, we allow God to work in us that we'll want to do his will. Because that's part of this salvation that he's working out in us, to do his will and for us to want to do his will. Because we need all that encouragement. We need all that strength to do that in this world. It said in verse 14, do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Just like Mark was talking about. We shine. We should shine. We should be bold to shine as lights in the world. Holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Hold fast that word of God. Shine as lights. And not be, he says, a bunch of complainers. Not be a bunch of complainers. You know, it's hard to do. I just spent the first half of this message complaining about the world. But it is hard to do. Not to complain not to depress ourselves, not to be arguers and disputers. He said, do all things without complaining and disputing. Life is difficult. Get over it. That's it. Pretty simple, isn't it? Life is difficult. We just need to get over that. We need to deal with it. God said, stop complaining. Why? Firstly, because it won't change and secondly, it will lead to a root of bitterness. We'll become bitter against God. You're not doing something that I expect you to do. Well, I never told you I'd do that in the first place. It'll bring up a root of bitterness. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated. Yeah, you're lame. But it could be worse. We could be dislocated. 
then how are we going to walk in that newness of life? We may be lame, but let's strengthen that joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this, many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He found, and he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. You know, I always struggled with this passage a little bit. How does Esau fit? What's that all about? Then I realized it's about endurance. It's about endurance. Esau was famished. He was just so hungry and all the physical things of this world were just weighing in on him and he counted his inheritance as nothing. Nothing. Can we do the same thing? Can we do that? Just cheaply trade our inheritance away because we are complaining and we are just so unhappy and we've just gotten ourselves into a place where we have forgotten the promises of God. He never said, you're going to have it easy. He never said, life's going to be easy for you while the whole world is collapsing. He never said that. Let's not complain, brethren, when we have trouble in the world. If we didn't have Christ Jesus, then our trouble would be worse. But we're still going to have trouble. What did Jesus say in John 16, 33? These things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have trouble. will have it. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So we will also, right? In Christ Jesus, when he completes that, he completes that mission on the earth. So that brings us back to Isaiah chapter 3 and verse 10. Say to the righteous that it should be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doing. Like I said, we don't read here that God is going to protect them from the judgments that he's going to bring on the earth. It's not in there. But he has promised that we'll eat the fruit of our doing. That we will see the fruit of our labor. We will see it. And we'll, we'll be able to eat it. We'll be able to incorporate it into us. It'll become part of us. And he gives us this promise as we live in the middle of what Peter said. A wicked and perverse generation. In the middle of this, we are to shine like light this hope that we will get to eat of the fruit of our righteousness, which is really not ours, is it? Christ Jesus in us. So what is that? You may be asking. What is the fruit of righteousness? I'm going to leave that to you to discover yourself. I'm going to leave that to you to study. Maybe at home tonight. Maybe here in fellowship as we eat, we have snacks. Get out a concordance, a Bible study tool. Do some looking up. 
Do some searching for fruit of righteousness and understand what that's going to be. Study it for ourselves. But as a primer, I want to read to you a passage in closing from David. Psalm 37. I'm going to start in verse 28. It says, For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake the saints. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the earth. How about that for some fruit? The righteous shall inherit the earth or land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous speak wisdom. His tongue talks of justice. The law of God is in his heart. None of his steps will slide. You know, that's another fruit we can have now. If we keep that law in our mouth and in our heart, that can keep us firm. We're not going to slip. We're not going to fall. And we can follow that path that Christ Jesus walked ahead of us. Not sell our birthright. Not give it away cheaply. It says, the wicked watches the righteous and seeks to slay him. Yeah, we could be a target. We could be a target. The Lord will not leave him in his hand, though, nor condemn him when he is judged. Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. We'll see it. We'll see the cutting off of the wicked. We will see that day of judgment. We will stand. And if we remain in Christ Jesus, we will remain after the wicked are cut off from this earth. We will stand on the earth forever. I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a native green tree. Yeah, they look like they're impressive and they... They can't be toppled. They can't be toppled. Seeing what the wind can do to a big native tree blows it down. Yet he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Indeed, I saw him, but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man. Observe the upright, for the future of that man, that woman, Another fruit of righteousness. Fruit of our doings will be peace in Christ Jesus. But the transgressors shall be destroyed altogether. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. And the reverse is true for the righteous, right? The future of the righteous is forever. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. The Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them. Why? Because they trust in him. All the way back to righteousness. How we become righteous. A belief and faith.